0: Hey, I'm Nancy Kaye, National ERISA Disability Attorney and IDI Disability Attorney. Welcome to Winning Isn't Easy. Before we get started, I've got to give you a legal disclaimer. This podcast isn't legal advice. The Florida Bar Association says, I've got to say this, so now I've said it. Nothing will ever prevent me from giving you an easy-to-understand overview of the disability insurance world, the games that carriers play, and what you need to know to get the disability benefits you deserve. So let's talk about MetLife today. Do you have a MetLife short-term or long-term disability insurance policy, or are you the beneficiary of an employer-provided MetLife disability plan? If so, today's podcast is for you. But if you're not insured by MetLife, you can still learn lessons from this podcast. I'm going to talk about three things today. First, what happens when your disability claim straddles two insurance companies when your employer changes carriers? Can MetLife demand that a policyholder with chronic headaches produce objective evidence of their disability? And last, a court acknowledges that a cardiopulmonary exercise test, a CPET test, is the gold standard for measuring the functional capacity of a disability insurance policyholder with fibromyalgia and how a doctor's failure to explain the basis of the disability can doom your claim. So let's take a break before we get started. Have you been robbed of your peace of mind from your disability insurance carrier? You owe it to yourself to get a copy of Robbed of Your Peace of Mind, which provides you with everything you need to know about the long-term disability claim process. Request your free copy of the book at KVLaw.com today. Welcome back to Winning Isn't Easy. What happens when your disability claim straddles two insurance companies when your employer changes carriers? Now, it's not uncommon for employers to change disability carriers, but what happens if you become disabled during the period of time in which your carrier is being changed by your employer? Which carrier, if any, will pay you benefits? What happens if both carriers deny the claim? What do you do? Now, this is a bit of a factually complex issue and a policy complex issue. So bear with me because facts matter and the terms of the policy matter. In this particular case, Mr. T faced this problem when he became disabled due to trigeminal neuralgia and he had surgery. He worked for Becton Dickinson and Company, BD, and they had a disability plan that was insured in 2016 by standard. And in 2007, changed to MetLife. He first went out on disability on November 9, 2016. Write that down. He was on short-term disability through December 22, 2016. Write that down. He returned to work as a product development engineer on December 23, 2016. So write that down. He then had a relapse that took him out again on January 12, 2017. Now remember... Carrier changed in 2017. So, write that down. Mr. T exhausted his short term disability claim and then filed a long term disability claim with Standard. So, guess what? Standard did. Standard said, Oh, no, we're not going to pay you any benefits because you weren't covered under that policy. Really? Hmm. Not to be outdone, Mr. T filed a claim with MetLife and they said nothing. They ignored him. So, then he sued. Standard, MetLife, and the plan. Now, during litigation, he settled the standard claim, and standard's policy had a provision called the effects of recovery. This is an important term in a disability policy. So if you're facing this situation, you need to get out your policy. This provision said that no long-term disability benefits would be payable after benefits became payable to you under any other disability insurance plan under which you became insured during your period of temporary recovery. That's a lot of words, isn't it? Now, this is an interesting provision because many policies and plans have a provision that says if you become disabled again because of the same condition for which you are collecting benefits, and you do so within a specified period of time, normally 60 to 90 days, you're entitled to your benefits. That's called a recurrent disability provision. However, in this case, the policy had a twist. And the twist was that if there was a new policy under which you become insured during this period of time, this recurrent disability provision, there was no coverage. Now, that's amazing. And you can see why you have to get out and review your own specific disability policy or plan, because there's no uniform policy or plan. As I said, this case is fact-specific and policy-specific. This case ultimately went to the Fifth Circuit in the case of Mr. Talamantes versus MetLife. And it's a Fifth Circuit case that came out in June of uh, 2021. Now, the court rejected MetLife's argument that Standard was responsible for the payment of benefits because MetLife had argued that benefits were never payable under their policy and that he was only eligible for coverage. Okay, that's an interesting twist. Well, what did the policy say? The the 2017 MetLife policy explained that coverage took effect when an employee was covered under a prior plan, which was here, and was actively at work on the day before the replacement date. Well, remember I told you to write down dates? The court noted that the replacement date was January 1st, 2017, and he worked through January 11, 2017. So the court reasoned that MetLife's interpretation was dependent on the merits of each disability claim, and that the plan beneficiaries would never know if they had coverage or not until they litigated the case. The court said, oh, no, no. The purpose of ERISA, which governed this claim, is to bring uniformity to the claims process. And MetLife's interpretation led to uncertainty. Now, the court also looked at the standard policy language. That language was clear, that the benefit coverage had shifted from standard to MetLife based on the circumstances of this case and the language of the policies. Mr. Talamati's standard coverage ended when the new plan became effective January 1st, 2007. He was actively at work and disabled on January 11, 2017, and he was covered under the MetLife policy. Now, in my opinion, this is a correct decision based on the facts and the policy, but I will tell you it's not uncommon for disability carriers to point the finger at each other and say, You we're not responsible, you are. I don't want you to let your disability carriers rob you of your peace of mind. And you can see that this is a fact-intensive, policy-intensive issue. If you have this type of situation, you need to consult with an experienced Arisa disability attorney who's going to want the facts, the medical chronology, the return-to-work chronology, and the terms of the policy so they can try to figure out this interesting dilemma. Now, I'm going to pause for a moment and take a break. But when we come back, I'm going to talk about whether the carrier can demand objective evidence in a migraine claim. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Winning Isn't Easy. Can MetLife demand that a policyholder with chronic headaches produce objective evidence of their disability? Facts matter in a disability case. That's particularly true when the policyholder has subjective medical conditions like chronic headaches. A chronic headache is considered subjective because there's no objective diagnostic testing or gold standard test to determine whether, in fact, you have chronic headaches. Many courts will acknowledge that chronic headaches and migraine pain is the type of medical condition that is difficult to diagnose through labs, reports, and imaging scans. Yet, many disability carriers insist on objective evidence or clinical evidence as a prerequisite for disability, even when the disability policy in question doesn't even require objective evidence of proof. They make it up. And that's exactly what happened in the case of Hamid versus MetLife which is a Northern District, California case. Now, Mr. Hamid was the Enterprise Retail Sales Manager at the Bank of America, and he managed the mortgage department for eight BOA branches and managed 10 to 15 employees. Unfortunately, he had had migraine headache issues as early as 2000. He had seen over a dozen different doctors for these problems. He had been seen by neurologists, allergists, rheumatologists, you name it, he had been seen by them. He underwent both conservative and invasive treatment, including multiple nasal surgeries and Botox injections. Unfortunately, none of that was successful. His medical records documented his chronic head and face pain, which was corroborated by family members and co-workers. He stopped working because of those frequent migraines, persistent pain and pressure in his face and head. He also obviously would have suffered from fatigue and mental fogginess, which were the side effects of his medication. So what did MedLife do with this short and long-term disability claim? Well, what well, they always do, MetLife denied both the short and long-term disability claim on the basis that there was not enough clinical or objective evidence to substantiate his subjective complaints. They even claimed he was exaggerating his symptoms because his treating doctor commented that his symptoms were out of proportion to the exam findings and objective findings. Every one of MetLife's liar-for-hire doctors opined there was insufficient evidence of impairment. And as a result of the claims denial, he appealed and ultimately filed a lawsuit in federal court. What did the judge do with this evidence? Now, it's clear that MetLife improperly conditioned benefits on the existence of objective evidence, even against the backdrop of Hamid's consistent and corroborated reports of chronic pain. The judge first looked at the totality of the evidence and found Hamid's symptoms to be credible. Now, the judge, to his credit, noted that the same treating doctor who said his symptoms were out of proportion continued to recommend treatment, including surgeries. The judge reasoned that the continued recommendation for treatment supported the veracity and the intensity of Hamid's symptoms. The judge also found objective evidence of disability because of the supporting letters from his treating physicians and supporting statements from friends, family, and co-workers. These documents further established that Hamid was honest about the nature of his symptoms. And after finding that his symptoms were credible, the judge closely reviewed the medical records and looked for objective evidence of disability. Now, the judge noted that MetLife had misconstrued Hamid's lengthy medical history failing to credit numerous objective indicators of pain. The judge was impressed by the fact that he had gone to great lengths to relieve his symptoms. He had sought out and gotten pain management treatment. He had undergone Botox injections, allergy injections, and surgery. He had taken powerful medications including opioids and ketamine, which in the judge's opinion were objective evidence of disability and impairment. As a result of finding that his symptoms were credible, the length to which, he, had, as a result of finding Hamid's symptoms being credible, the great lengths to which he had gone to get treatment, the nature of the treatment, the judge awarded short-term disability benefit and 24 months of own occupation long-term disability benefits. You can see having the support of your physician and documentation of your symptoms and your problems with functionality are key to winning a disability claim. Let's take a break. Are you a professional with questions about your individual disability policy? you need the Disability Insurance Claim Survival Guide for Professionals. This book gives you a comprehensive understanding of your disability policy, with tips and to-dos regarding your disability application that will assist you in submitting a winning disability application. This is one you won't wanna miss. For the next 24 hours, we are giving away free copies of the Disability Insurance Claim Survival Guide for Professionals. Order yours today at disabilityclaimsforprofessionals.com. Welcome back to Winning Isn't Easy. A court acknowledges how a cardiopulmonary exercise test, known as a CPET, is the gold standard for measuring the functional capacity of a disability insurance policy holder with fibromyalgia, but how a doctor's failure to explain the basis of the claim can doom a claim notwithstanding the CPET. Now look, many courts don't require laboratory data to confirm the symptoms of fibromyalgia, such as pain and fatigue. So they don't necessarily look for an objective basis of the diagnosis because there is not always an objective basis, even uh, on physical examination. But the courts do agree that a disability carrier is entitled to have medical evidence of a physical disability that prevents the policyholder from performing the material and substantial duties of their own occupation. And the disability carrier is also entitled to an explanation of how and why the treating physician assigned the restrictions and limitations. But what happens if the treating physician doesn't provide that information? The disability carrier is going to have their own lawyer for hire doctors review the medical records. They're going to have the doctor liar for hire doctor, reach out to the treating physician for clarification. Now, if the treating doctor doesn't explain the basis of the diagnosis and the physical restrictions and limitations, a court is generally going to agree that the carrier has the legal right to reject that opinion and rely on the opinions of the peer-reviewed doctor. Now, as I've said, one of the most common defenses to a fibromyalgia disability claim is the carrier's argument that there is no objective evidence of the fibromyalgia and there's no objective evidence of the functional restrictions and limitations. And sometimes carriers will take this a step further uh, and have the policyholder undergo a not-so-independent evaluation by their hand-picked doctor so that they can claim that they have thoroughly evaluated the fibromyalgia claim before denying it. So how does this play out? Well, it doesn't always play out in the favor of a, a policyholder, but in the case of Metafessor versus MetLife, which is an Oregon case, it does, in part. And let me explain the details of this case. Ms. Medfester was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. She had all the classic complaints of fibromyalgia, multiple trigger points, body-wide pain, brain fog, decreased energy. She stopped working and she applied for both her short and long-term disability benefits, which were denied by MetLife. She appealed, and as part of her appeal, she underwent a CPET test that measured her capacity for physical activity. The testing revealed that she had a limited threshold for performing even seated sedentary work. So MetLife then had her file reviewed by a rheumatologist who cited the CPET results as objective measures that clearly distinguished between indolence and true disability. And noted that the findings were consistent with her subjective complaints and objective findings on examination. So MetLife accepted that and paid her own occupation benefits. But when the standard of disability changed to any occupation, they exercised their rights to a not-so-independent IME. And MetLife had noted in the medical records that she was her ailing mother's primary caregiver, and MetLife went off to the races. So you need to be careful about what you're telling your doctor. The IME said what the IME was paid to say. She could do full-time sedentary work eight hours a day. And guess what happened? Her claim got denied. Now, she filed an appeal that was also denied. And as a result, she ends up in federal court. And she argued three things. One, that MetLife improperly terminated her benefits and denied her claim without evidence of improvement. Two, that the IME improperly required objective data, notwithstanding the results of the CPET. And three, that the CPET report was the gold standard for measuring and evaluating her functional capacity and fatigue. Now, the Court throughout the denial noting that the CPET was considered in the fields of exercise science and medicine as the gold standard uh, and was recognized by the American College of Sports Medicine, American Heart Association, American College of Chest Physicians, American Thoracic Society, and American Medical Association. They found that the CPET, which is a study that's normally based on two exercise tests on consecutive days, Uh, was a standardized physical stressor and recognized. Now, the court accepted that, and the court also ultimately accepted uh, her arguments and and awarded claims, but the court also criticized her physician for not really addressing why the restrictions and limitations had been assigned. Uh, She was fortunate because most courts would have denied the claim and said, we've got to connect the CPET in terms of her restrictions and limitations and her inability to do any occupation. Uh, But this court was sympathetic. So while she was awarded the benefits, I think there are a couple lessons here. The first lesson is that every fibromyalgia policyholder should have a CPET exam to document their restrictions and limitations. Secondly, they should have their physician endorse the results of the CPET. Three, they should have their physician explain that The basis of the restrictions and limitations are based not only on their clinical examination of you based on the findings that you present, but that is also consistent with and correlates with the the CPET exam. I really don't want the carrier to seize on the argument that there's no explanation for the CPET results and the restrictions and limitations, even though that would be self-evident. I hope that you have enjoyed this week's episode. If you like this podcast, consider liking our page, leaving a review, and sharing it with family and friends. Remember, this podcast comes out weekly, so stay tuned for next week's episode of Winning Isn't Easy. Thanks.